I'll be referring a couple of times as we go to that passage in John chapter 8. So if you have it open before you, you'll find that helpful. John 8 on page 1074. Let us pray. Gracious Father God, we have gathered here this morning to feed on you. We need your nourishment. Otherwise, we go hungry and weak. Lord, we we pray that you'd feed us now on your word, which is the bread of life to us. And we pray that you'd feed us again in a moment when we gather around the table and take the bread and the wine, remembering Jesus. Lord, come and nourish us just now. Amen. Last Sunday, the 25th of March, 2007, marked the 200th anniversary of abolition, that time when slavery was abolished by an act of the British Parliament. You've probably seen some of the events Uh, that have happened in the public domain to celebrate that in the last couple of weeks. Amazing Grace is the name of the mainstream film celebrating the achievements of William Wilberforce and his role in the securing of abolition. Again, maybe some of you by now have had the chance to see that film. Christian relief agencies like Tear Fund and Christian Aid, they've done a great job in raising the profile of slavery for us again, and I suppose reminding us of something that we maybe weren't always aware of, and that is that slavery is an ongoing issue in our world today, uh, that millions throughout the world are held in some sort of captivity uh, or slavery, and we're grateful to those Christian relief agencies who have flagged that up for us. Churches throughout Britain dubbed last Sunday Freedom Sunday in recognition of this slavery issue. Here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, we didn't do an awful lot with that, but we did uh, remember to pray for those caught up in slavery in our prayers of intercession. Last Sunday may have been Freedom Sunday, but every Sunday is Freedom Sunday in the Church of Jesus Christ. Today, again, is Freedom Sunday. The freedom that we celebrate as God's people isn't one that was won 200 years ago, more like 2,000. It's not one that was won for us by politicians or by William Wilberforce. And the freedom isn't the the freedom simply of, of black African slaves. The freedom we celebrate is the freedom of millions of people throughout the world, throughout centuries of history. This freedom that we celebrate is our own freedom if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm no slave and I never have been. There's nothing that I need to be set free from. And as soon as we say those words or or think those thoughts, we identify ourselves with the people Jesus is talking to in John chapter 8. 
remember what's going on there? Jesus is talking to a crowd. He tells the people there that obeying him somehow sets them free. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. What do you mean, Jesus, the truth will set us free? We've never been slaves, so how can you say we'll be set free? They, they said there in John 8. Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We don't like to think of ourselves as slaves, none of us. And certainly not in the modern world. We have grown up with a, a self-image of ourselves as independent people. People who are free to come and go as we please. People who are free to do what we want when we want. We like to think of ourselves in, in those kind of terms. But Jesus doesn't concur. He doesn't agree with us. He says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sin's funny in that regard because it promises so much and delivers so little. Whenever we sin, whenever we consciously reject God and decide, I'm going to go and do my own thing, for a moment, it feels like a freedom like we've never experienced before. But the reality is that when we turn from God, we end up enslaved to all sorts of other things. Do I sin? Well, most of us would say yes. Then, says Jesus, I'm a slave to sin. Am I selfish? More selfish than I'd like to be and more often than I'd like to be. Well, that's because I'm a slave to sin. Am I sometimes rude in my dealings with other people? That also is because I'm a slave to sin. Am I caught up in addictive habits that are ruining my life and the life of people around me? There's more evidence of this, this slavery to sin that we experience. In his short letter to Titus, Paul talks about our slavery to sin. He says, At one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Paul agrees with Jesus. He says that we're all in this together. I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus allows that it's possible that someone isn't a slave to sin, and that person is the person who doesn't sin. I've quite often put that question in, in smaller group contexts than this. I, I've asked a group, is there anybody here who, who doesn't sin? And I haven't got any takers yet. Maybe there's somebody here today, um, but probably not. We know that we don't live the lives that we want to live. We know that there's something that shackles us and enslaves us and holds us in its power. Whenever Wilberforce was confronted with the grim reality that millions 
of Africans were being dragged from their homes to slavery all over the developing world. He wanted to do something about it, naturally enough. Think then of how God, God who created us and who loves us, each one, how He wants to respond to the slavery that that enslaves the entire world. God is an abolitionist. He wants to see people set free. And that's why Jesus talks in the terms that he does here in John chapter 8. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. How does Jesus set us free? Let's try and make this a little bit more concrete. Some people would say, well, Jesus sets us free by being a good example to us. He lived a perfect life, and he becomes this wonderful model for us. If only we look to Jesus and try to be like him, that frees us from our slavery. And of course, the Bible does talk about Jesus as an example to us. It invites us to imitate him time and time again. But friends, that's not it. The answer goes much, much deeper than that. Sometimes we imagine that that it's a willpower thing. If only I really clear my mind and give 100% of my attention to living this way, I can do it. I can live a new and a better life. I can be free from, from those habits and those things that enslave me. We think it's a willpower thing. Have you ever tried that? Most of us have, actually. Most of us have at some time or other recognized something in ourselves that that turns our own stomachs, and we've said, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be that person anymore. But most most of us also go on to say that 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 resorting to willpower results in failure. We need a power much stronger than willpower. We need, well, the Bible says we need God's power to change us if any change is really to occur. And the wonderful message of the gospel of the Bible is that God makes his power available to us. Whenever we trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God's power begins to work on our behalf As I was thinking about this and reading on it a little bit, I I read something that really struck me. One writer put it like this. He says that up until the point where we accept Jesus Christ, God's power works against us. All of God's power is actually directed towards our condemnation and our judgment because we live outside of the reign of God. And this guy then suggested that a wonderful thing happens whenever we do trust Jesus Christ and begin to follow him. Suddenly, all the power of God becomes directed towards us in a positive way. God unleashes his power on us in a merciful and in a gracious way. God gives us power now to change and to become the people that he wants us to be. In other words, a couple of things happen when we come to Jesus Christ. We normally only focus on the first thing. 
Whenever we come to Jesus Christ, God's power works to take away the guilt of our sin. And that's a wonderful message. Wonderful. If you're in Jesus today, you're forgiven. Your guilt is gone. But that's only half the story because God's power now works in a second way in our lives. And God's power works for our transformation to free us from our slavery to sin, to make something new of us. Whenever I preach for you here in Kirkpatrick Memorial, I purposely don't use theological language. I'm going to use some just now. A theologian might put it like this. He would make a distinction between justification and sanctification. Justification is that moment when God takes away the guilt of our sin and declares us not guilty. That happens when a person trusts in Jesus Christ, and it happens in an instant. Sanctification is a second part of what God does for us in Jesus, and it's a process. It's God's power at work in our lives to change us, to make us holy. Friends, don't let's imagine that, that only one half of that is important or what God does for us. Once we're in Christ, the whole of our lives are given over to this, this work of God to set us free and to change us. How does God do that? Well, he does it very simply by giving us his Holy Spirit. As soon as we accept Christ and respond to him, God does an incredible thing. God says from here on in, I will indwell you. I'm not going to give you a way of life and tell you, right, there it is, have a crack at that. No. He says, I'm going to teach you a brand new way of life as I indwell you and work it out in you. God gives us his Holy Spirit. Paul had talked in that letter to Titus about a time when we were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. In a different place, Paul describes a person who's as different from that as chalk and cheese. He talks of a person full of love and of joy and of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness, self-control, and gentleness. Paul says these things are the marks that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Friends, that is how God sets us free. By Jesus' death on the cross, he sets us free from his judgment and condemnation, but he also sets us free from the slavery to sin that we've been thinking about here this morning. Isn't that incredible? I find this such an exciting aspect of the gospel. I can change. If you were anything like me, you'd be delighted to hear that the possibility of change is real. And maybe if you're anything like you, 
you're delighted to hear that too. I don't have to be the same person in a year's time and in ten years' time that I am today. I thank God for that. But neither do you. We can be changed, and as God works in us, that's exactly what we should be expecting to see. To be set free from all those things that hold us and shackle us, that make us so much less than we long to be. Jesus is right. He says when he sets us free, we'll be free indeed. Today is Freedom Sunday. At least it is here. And so will next week be. And every other. In the church of Jesus Christ, we always have this before us, this wonderful freedom that's been won for us in Jesus Christ. The way we celebrate this today takes on a unique form. It's not like Freedom Sunday last week. There will be no big public occasions. There will be no Hollywood films to celebrate what we celebrate here. We're going to celebrate instead the way Jesus instructed us to. A simple meal between friends. We're going to eat some bread together. And we're going to drink some wine together. And as we do that, we're going to remember that Jesus died so that we can be free. We're going to remember the freedom that he won for us in his death. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. Before we come to the table and celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we're going to sing.